you have a Bible, find Philippians chapter 1. Uh, excuse me, chapter 2. Chapter 2, man. We go in places. Yeah, we finally finished our look through chapter 1. Today we're coming to chapter 2. But we're going to find um, that while at some point in, in church history somebody put a big fat 2 right there, to mark a new chapter, you can kind of see why they would have put it in this place. There is a little bit of a pivot, but not too much of one, um, we're going to find out. Because even though we're starting a new chapter, he is still fleshing out, Paul is, who wrote this letter. He's still fleshing out something he said back in chapter 1, verse 27. If you found that in your Bible, look back at chapter 1, verse 27, just that first full phrase of, of verse 27, chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I'm going to do a little bit of a review since last week was uh, we had a guest speaker. It's been a couple of weeks since we looked at this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is a command, and that is the command that is like guiding. It's like the banner verse that's guiding Everything that Paul's going to say all the way into chapter 2, all the way to chapter 2, verse 18. And so our, that means our passage today, which is chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, is like right square in the middle of that section. And it's worth reminding ourselves, since it's been a couple of weeks, that when Paul says in 127, he uses that phrase, your manner of life, let your manner of life be worthy. Um, the word that he used in Greek was polituo. Polituo. It's where we get politics, political, and it has the connotation um, of your life as a citizen. It, it has that connotation. In fact, there's a, there's a footnote in my Bible. There may be one in yours, like an alternate translation that says the Greek means only behave as citizens worthy, right? That's, that's the idea that it carries. So, uh, that word, polituo, would, would have typically been used in that day in other writings outside the Bible for them to talk about how they should conduct their lives as Roman citizens. Like, you know what Rome stands for. You know the values of Rome. So you measure your life up to that standard. You, you represent Rome well and the Roman Empire well in how you live. That's how they honor Rome in, in the way that you live and conduct yourself. That's how it would have been typically used. Paul is co-opting that idea and that, that word. It suits his purposes quite well to remind these Philippians that while you do live, he, they would have lived this level in, in the Roman Empire, they actually are citizens of a greater kingdom. He'll, he'll tell them that in chapter 3, verse 20. But your citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior. And so they are citizens of, of a greater kingdom, an eternal kingdom, with a greater king, greater than Caesar. He's the king of all kings. That's your primary citizenship, he says. And now he's saying, don't try to measure, don't, don't try to live a life worthy of, of, of Rome. Live a life worthy of Christ and his gospel and that kingdom to which you belong. And he's exhorting them and, and commanding them and, 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 and us, by extension, to live a life that reflects to the world that we, that we belong to and are citizens of that kingdom. Um, and uh, in the final verses, we, he, he, he commanded that in, in chapter 1, verse 27. 
In the verses that follow that in chapter 1 at the end, Paul was sort of fleshing out what he means by worthy. He's not going to say, live worthy, period, you figure out what that means. He's going to sort of show you and me what worthy looks like. And to remember what we saw at the end of chapter 1, in those verses, 27 to 30, he was defining worthy in how they stood together for the truth of the gospel, how they strove together for the, for the gospel and, and stayed strong together in the midst of persecution for, the, for their bearing witness uh, to Christ. And so in other words, at the end of chapter 1, worthy was defined primarily in terms of their interactions with the world around them, how they bore witness to Christ, how they stood for the truth of the gospel and, and faced pers- persecution together, how they, how they interacted with the world around them bearing witness to Christ. That's what worthy looked like. When we come to our verses today, Paul pivots ever so slightly, uh, but still defining what walking worthy as a citizen means, right? Um, But we're going to see in verses 1 to 4, he's going to do it now, not primarily in terms of our relationships with outsiders to the faith, though he's not left that completely, but primarily in terms of our relationships with each other. And then by extension, the the witness that bears to outsiders to the faith. To put it differently, Paul is now going to talk about their unity with each other. Um, And and, and then implicitly, the the witness that that unity bears to unbelievers. Okay, The focus is still on the primary aim of gospel advancement, but it's through the means now of their unity with each other, okay? That isn't really anything new here. That's not anything that, like, uh, you're encountering for the first time in Philippians if you're a reader of your Bible. I mean, you, 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 you should know that Jesus famously said it at the end of John 13, John 13, 34, and 35, that you, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, Even as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he adds this, by this, what is this? Your love for one another? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for the other. So the world will know. I mean, it bears witness. It's a testimony to the world in how we love each other and the unity we have each other. And that shows that there is an evangelistic point to unity. Right? It, the, the, the end goal is not just we get along. That's not the end goal. The end goal is that in our getting along in true biblical gospel unity, we are bearing true witness to Christ. We're, bearing, we're not bearing false witness to his gospel. We're, 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 we're walking around incarnations of the truth of it. Okay? By our, because our unity is not just unity. It's unity in his name. Okay? And in John 17, Jesus prayed to the Father. He said, Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, the the people that you have given me. He says, keep them in your name, that they may be one, even as we are one. So unity is a big deal to Jesus. And, and And so it should be to us too. So before we read our text, I want to say one more word just in preparation for what we're going to see before we dive into it. I want to say one more thing about unity. Um, The kind that Paul is going to be talking about in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. 
uh, a couple of, or two or three Wednesdays ago, um, we talked about the emphasis on unity, uh, that, that kind of emphasis that, that seems to be perpetually present uh, in the Auburn Christian community, at least at the collegiate level, right? Um, we, we, we talked about how you see that um, in, in, in things like the Oaks Retreat, right, that we're, we're talking about our college ministries and our church that were united together for, for the common cause for the gospel, or you, we just had the event, Unite Auburn, and so there's this ethos of unity in Auburn, and in itself, that's a good thing. I would rather it be that than not that, right? That's a good thing, but I said on that night, on Wednesday night, and it's on the podcast if you didn't hear it, I said on that night that one little tidbit of discernment you need to have in that and be aware of is, is that when, when we talk about unity in Auburn or you hear it talked about or emphasized, whenever that is emphasized in Auburn, it's almost always, it's almost always in the context of different churches coming together or not even churches coming together, just Christians at large in Auburn coming together um, coming together for some Christian event or coming together for some ministry effort. And again, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We ought to always work for that. Um, and it certainly, it is an example of what Jesus was praying for and said would bear good witness to his name. What I'm trying to say in preparation for what we're going to see is what the unity that Paul is going to talk about in our passage today, is not less than that, but it is more than that. It's more than that. What Paul is going to talk about this morning in our text about unity has to do with unity, not just among churches together in general or Christians at large in general. The, the, the unity that he's talking about is among believers in the same local church, in the same local church, Right? And that is in line with what we said a couple of Wednesdays ago, that the vast majority of the attention in the New Testament is on the local church, this little outpost of the kingdom of God, this little embassy of that kingdom that we call Lakeview Baptist Church. And if I was talking at First Baptist Hopalika, I would say this little embassy, this little outpost. And if I was talking at Grace Auburn, I would say this little outpost. We're all little outposts of the kingdom, Right? a bunch of little embassies bearing the, uh, the official name of Christ. And what goes on in that little outpost, Little C Church? What goes on in that local church? How do we know that that's Paul's focus in this chapter? Well, pretty simply, that's who he's writing to here. He's writing uh, to the local church in Philippi. How do you know that he's not just writing generically to all Christians in Philippi. Because how did he introduce the letter in chapter 1, verse 1? Because it seems initially like he's talking to Christians in general because he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. How do you know he's talking to a local church? Because there, there's not a period at the end of that. There's a comma that says, with the overseers and the deacons. There's something official to that. There's off, there, 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 the offices of a local church is right there. And throughout this whole letter, he is commending this local church for supporting him in his, uh, in his uh, 
missionary efforts and, and in prison, and even sending one of their members, Epaphroditus, to go help him. Paul's going to single out two ladies in that local church in chapter 4, verse 2, Euodia and Syntyche, who were threatening the unity in that local church. So Paul is writing to a local church. And beginning in our passage today, he's going to begin an extended discussion about unity in the local church, in what we have right here, which is a much more difficult thing to achieve. It's a much more difficult thing to achieve. Um, and because it's more difficult to achieve, it's therefore a much more significant witness when it is achieved and it's maintained. Why is it a much more difficult thing to achieve? Because we're, we're covenanted together. We're covenanted to get together. We are the ones who worship together week in and week out. We're the ones who meet together during the week. And because we are together so much, because we're together so much, there are all the more opportunities that are going to come our way for disunity, right? You see each other. You talk to each other. You have opportunity to get on each other's nerves. You have opportunity to offend one another more because you see each other Sunday, Wednesday, or maybe depending on when your missional community group is, maybe three times a week, four times a week. You're around each other. There's more opportunity to offend each other, to, to get on each other's nerves, and, and for disunity to take place. That's, that is, that is, uh, that's not what happens when we just come together, Christians at large, for one event, and poof, it's gone. It happened, we're done, right? Or even the Oaks Retreat, which is several days strung together, but it's over, and it'll be around next year. What about 52 weeks out of the year? We're together. It's, it's a difficult thing to achieve and to maintain. Uh, unity that Paul's talking about is a living and breathing and ongoing thing. Paul's going to begin a good discussion of it in our passage today, which we finally need to read together. So I assume you've found Philippians 2 by this point. And if so, follow along as I read verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what we just read is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And we come again humbly to you, Lord, and we ask that, we, that you might give us eyes to see the truth in these, in these verses. Would you give us minds to understand clearly what Paul is saying, and not just minds to understand it, but then hearts to embrace it. And, and love it and, and, and firmly um, give ourselves to it. And would you give us wills to obey what it is that Paul is admonishing us here. Correct us where we need correcting. Um, encourage us where we need encouraging. Enlighten us where we need enlightening. And Lord, um, please give me the help that I need to, to, to teach this passage 
to say what I need to say about it. Please give us ears to hear what you would speak to us in this word. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you're taking notes, let me lay out how I think we might divide up uh, these verses to think it through. I want, to th- I want to think about three different aspects to what Paul is saying here. So here's what we're going to see. In verse 1, uh, I believe Paul describes the possibility of unity. Verse 1 is the possibility of unity. He's going to lay out what is the basis for it, what makes it possible in a group like this, in a church like this. Verse 1, the possibility of unity. Second, in verse 2, um, which is very straightforward, to the point, doesn't, is not elaborate, verse 2 is going to show us the picture of unity. What does it look like? What does it look like? What, what, are we, what, is, what is the essence of Christian unity? That's verse 2. And then finally, um, in verses 3 and 4, uh, Paul's going to finish with the practice of unity. This is just beginning a discussion that he's going to continue in the verses that follow uh, the practice of unity. He's going to lay out uh, an important principle that, we, that, that covers a lot of the actions in verses 3 and 4. That's how I want to divide it up, so let's dive into the text and think first about the possibility of unity from verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. So if, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, it's worded in that verse like it's a conditional statement, if there is any, if there is any uh, encouragement of Christ, if there is any comfort from love. It leaves open if you're just reading it, say, well, maybe there's not any, right? If there is, though, that's what it sounds like to us, but it is a conditional statement, but Greek had more than one way of meaning that. And, and one of the ways that Paul had at his disposable, disposal in the original language is to write it in such a way that it was assumed to be the case, even though he stated it like a conditional. So what he's basically saying is, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, and if there is any comfort in love, and there is, um, and, and you could go on down the line. You could even translate it as, since there is encouragement in Christ. Since there is comfort from love. He's not talking about, um, he's talking about certain realities. He's not talking about possibilities here that may or may not be true. I've called this point the possibility of unity. Paul is going to argue that unity is possible, but because all of these realities right here are certain, right? These are things that are there for every believer. So let me say a word about each of them. Paul begins verse 1 by saying, since there is encouragement in Christ. There is any encouragement in Christ, and there is. I think Paul just opens this discussion up, reminding them of the basic reality that they're in Christ. That these believers in the church of Philippi, you're, you're, you're in Christ. And, and, and should, they should realize the deep encouragement that should come from that. Paul is going to, he has dwelt on that. He's going to dwell on that even more in the coming chapters. But just think about how what, there's some things that Paul has already said and sneak peek at some things he's going to say about this profound reality that this, this sinner who has repented of his or her sin, put their faith in Christ, is in Christ. 
Think about uh, how amazing that is. For example, look back in chapter 1, verse 29. And just, we didn't dwell on it. We didn't dwell on it. We were, we were talking about persecution when we blazed through uh, chapter 1, verse 29 the first time. But verse 29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. And we, rightly at that point, focused on the fact that suffering is part of the walk with Christ. That when, 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 when you come into the Christian walk, it's not just a matter of believing, it's a matter of following that may bring suffering with it. But if you look carefully at what verse 29 says, there are two things that it says has been granted to us. One is suffering. What's the other one that's been granted to us? Believing. <laughs> Isn't that what it says? That it has been granted to you not only to believe, but to suffer. That is saying that even the very belief we have, even the very faith we put in Christ, when we repent of our sins, we don't muster that up on our own goodness. That is something that is sovereignly granted to us. That's just what verse 29 says. It's been granted to us to believe. What a mercy that is. What a mercy and what a comfort that is. Because if you think that, that it is entirely up to you to believe, and it was, it, I gathered my willpower up to jump into Christ, there is the possibility that you could screw it up some point and jump right back out. But if God himself sovereignly had mercy on you and granted you the very faith that you have, he started it, he'll finish that work. That's what Philippians 1.6 says, right? It's amazing. Or even the things that he hasn't said yet. Like in chapter 3, verse 9, um, when he talks about being found in him and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. That, 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 just that language of being found in Christ, that just evokes the incredible assurance that not, a, not only on this day, on this October 1st day, but on the last day, we will be found in Christ, like safe in Him, assured now by what we just saw, that even the faith we have in Christ is a gift from his hand. Or even the very next verse, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. If we know him, it means he knows us. Our salvation in, in Christ isn't just a legal transaction in heaven. It's, a, it's, it's vibrant here that we can know Christ. He can know us. We're found in him, granted to us to believe. Even if we suffer, it's his goodness to us. Man, go back to chapter 2, verse 1. There is incredible encouragement that comes from being in Christ if you just think about all the things that are around it and in it. But then he says, if there's any comfort from love, and from the context of the preceding phrase, we're still talking about Christ and the love we have in Christ, the love that we have from Christ, the love that Christ has for us. And there's an interesting word there translated comfort, any comfort from love, which is a fine translation, but it also has the meaning of consolation. 
consolation. If there's any, some of the, some of your, if you don't have the ESV, if you have a different translation, some of your may say any consolation from love. That, that may be even be more accurate. Um, and that's interesting for this reason. When do we tend to use the word console or consolation? When do we typically use that kind of word? You're going to console somebody or, or there's consolation that's happening. It, it's typically when there's sadness or grieving going on, right? Sadness or grieving. And I think what Paul has in mind here is that the ex, is the expectation that the Christian would be so aware because of the work of the Holy Spirit in him, be so aware of his or her sin. It's, it's, just, a, it's just a fact. The older I get, the, the greater sinner I know myself to be, right? Like the, 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 a Christian is going to be very aware of his or her sin, and we're going to be so aware, increasingly aware, of how undeserving I am how undeserving you are as a Christian of any good thing. How could I ever expect Christ to love me? And he says, that's when in our grieving over sin, the merciful love of Christ consoles us, gives us consolation, comforts us, never wavers in, even when we expect it to, right? And Paul then says, there's encouragement in Christ. There's comfort from love. He says, any participation in the Spirit. And I like how the CSB and the New American Standard translate fellowship in the Spirit. It's an acknowledgement that those who are in Christ, loved by Christ, we also enjoy the fellowship of His Holy Spirit. And the Scripture says the role of the Spirit is to conform us into the image of Christ. And then he says, any affection and sympathy affection if there's any affection that's just another way of describing the love of christ um and sympathy here any affection and sympathy sympathy has the meaning of compassion as the niv puts it or even pity the word there even means pity and it just underscores how little we deserve any of these good things in christ He's just driving home. When he starts talking about, when he starts talking about unity, this is where he begins. Like we are in him by his free grace alone. He consoles us and comforts us by his love and his affection. He has compassion and pity on us. And he gives us his spirit to make us what we cannot make ourselves to be. And all of this is what Paul is saying makes unity possible. It's what makes unity possible among us. We know he's talking about unity because that's what he's going to describe in verse 2, but he presents these things to us as prelude to that. Right? Why are these things prelude to unity? Why are these the things that make um, unity possible? Well, if we fast forwarded to the third point we're going to talk about this morning, it, w- it would be more, more clear to you, but, but short of doing that, just think about it. Like, what is verse 1, if you think about all of those things together and how we describe them, what is verse 1 basically telling us is the key ingredient to unity? And my answer to that would be humility. 
humility. And what humbles us? What humbles us in the best possible way? What humbles us? The gospel. The gospel humbles us. The gospel tells us, I need Christ. I can't do it myself. And and, and the gospel, even when you feel like, I need Christ, but I don't deserve him, the gospel reminds us, you have him. You have him. Jesus saves sinners like you, like me. That's the gospel that, that teaches that Christ has compassion and pity and consoles us. He's present with us by his Holy Spirit. That should humble a person. No day is ever so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't bank heaven on the best 15 minutes of my life. Right? No, and, and you can tell how this is what creates the possibility for unity because it's, it's, not how, it's not hard to see that the opposite, how that would create discord, how that would create disunity. Think about what James says in James chapter 4. If you want to hold your place here and turn over to James chapter 4, and this is a reminder that we're going to be studying through James in the spring when we get finished uh, with Philippians. But remember how James begins James chapter 4, just verses 1 through 3. He, 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 James says, what, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It's a, seems like a relevant passage. We're talking about unity. We're th- trying to think of the opposite. Quarrels and fights seem like the opposite of unity. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Okay, tell me, James, what's the reason? Well, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That you desire and do not have so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. How so? You, you want to spend it on your passions. And just stop right there. There's a lot of self in that paragraph. In those three verses, a lot of self. You desire to have. You covet. You want to, and when you get, you want to spend it on yourself. That's what he's describing here. What is, what is James saying is the result when everybody's like that? I just want, I want, I want quarrels and fights. Disunity. What's the remedy then? Humility. Selflessness. Right? So as you turn back to Philippians, Paul is saying, We have been given everything we need to live according to the unity um, that that Christ's kingdom demands. We have it by coming to real terms with the gospel and all of its implications. That's why walking in this kind of unity is walking worthy of the gospel of Christ, as verse 27 says, chapter 1. But we need to move on. Verse 1 gives us the possibility of unity, but what does this unity look like? He's told us in verse 1 we have all the ingredients for it, but what is it exactly? For that, we move on to verse 2, the picture of unity. Look at verse 2 again. Complete my joy. By the way, that's the one command in this whole passage. Complete my joy. Paul's saying, do this for me. Do what? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There isn't a whole lot to add to that. 
Sometimes when you're trying to teach through a passage, you read something that's just so clear, you're thinking, I don't know what else to say about that. That was so clear, right? I mean, this is very straightforward. It's as if when you read verse 2, he is saying the same exact thing three different ways. One mind, same mind, full accord. That's not saying three different things. That's saying one thing three different ways. You got one mind. Why you got one mind? You got the same mind. What do you call when people have the same mind? Full accord. Same thing three different ways. I don't know what else you call that. The same mindset, the same mentality. Maybe that's what unity is. But, it's, but notice in, in verse 2, it's all that, that mentality, whatever that is, whatever that one mind is, whatever that same mind is, whatever that full accord is, notice in verse 2, it's animated by the same love. The same love. Why, why does he add love there, the same love? I think it's a reasonable question to ask. At least that's what I ask. Of course, I think it's reasonable. Because the reason I think that is because what, what need, what need is there for it, for love, if everyone is of one mind, if everyone is of the same mind? and of full accord. If we're all just thinking the same thing, why is love so important here? Because unity is not always uniformity. Unity is not always uniformity. Um, to be of one mind and to be of the same mind is not always having the same opinion. It's just not. Because what, how is that the case? Because we can, have this, we can have different opinions about certain things, but here's the important thing. Are we of the same mind on serve one another? Are we of the same mind on forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you? Are we of the same mind on speak the truth and love to one another? Are we of the same mind on bear one another's burdens. Are, are we on that kind? Of, when we're on that kind of same mind, one mind, we can have differences of opinion and it'll never disrupt the unity. It'll never. Be patient with one another. Practice reconciliation. All the things that he's going to mention in verses 3 and 4. In that sense, unity is, unity, this kind of unity is achieved when at the opinion level, at the opinion level, we may not be like-minded, but we are still like-hearted. We're like-hearted, right? Peter says love covers over a multitude of sins. And you can, there can be sin, and when love covers over it, it hasn't broken disunity. I mean, it hasn't broken the unity. How do you even achieve that? How do you even strive for like-mindedness and like-heartedness like that. Again, it goes back to verse, what we saw in verse 1. You meditate on the gospel. You meditate on the Word of God. If we're all meditating on the Word of God and the wisdom of God found in it, motivated by the gospel, that kind of unity is achievable. We're, we're filling our minds with the Scriptures and we have the mind of Christ. But we move on. What does it look like in practice? That's where Paul begins an answer in verses 3 and 4 that he's going to continue answering in the verses to come. Let's consider the practice of unity in verses 3 and 4. Look again at those verses. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, there's that word, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. You can see there how in those verses Paul's identifying humility, as we said earlier. But he begins by saying, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition is exactly what it sounds like. It's always thinking about yourself first, how to promote yourself. And that happens in all sorts of ways. You might think, I'm not a self-promoter, but you probably are. I am sometimes, right? Because a lot of times that selfish ambition shows up in the way we speak, in the way we talk. And, and James, again, coming in the spring, remember in James 3, he says the tongue is a fire. It's like a match thrown in a forest that starts a forest fire, right? Selfish ambition often shows up in our words. How? Through when we're talking to others, we exaggerate ourselves. We exaggerate our successes so that somebody else might look at us favorably. I want to promote myself in their eyes. Here's the negative way we do it. We slander somebody else. We put them down. We gossip about them. Make them look worse in an effort to make ourselves look better. We're bad at it. <laughs> We're bad at it. We're terrible self-promoters. Paul says, get that junk out of here. <laughs> right? He says, not just selfish ambition, but conceit. That word means empty conceit. It's empty. Um, older translation said vain glory. If it's, 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 it's thinking of yourself more highly than you should. Because if you think back to verse 1, what, do, what we deserve from Christ is not glory for who we are. It's not congratulations for who we are. It's compassion and pity. We're sinners. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you should. And Paul says in chapter 2, verse 3 here, that the opposite of that is, in humility, counting others more significant than yourself. Now, you need to understand what Paul is saying there. Understanding, understand what he's not saying first. He's not saying that other people are more important or more valuable than you. Because every person is created equally in the image of God. No one person is more important than another person. But he is saying, in practice, we should treat each other the other person with more significance than yourself, right? And there is a difference. It means even though you're equal, you lay down your desire to help give them what you know they want or need, right? Defer to the other person. This is actually one of the principles that Laura and I use a lot when we do premarital counseling. When we talk about how you should communicate with each other as husband and wife, but it, what we say in that setting is really applicable to any relationship anywhere in the world, especially in the local church. Let me give you the example that I give when we, Laura and I do premarital counseling, and I'm the butt of this critique. Um, and so if we ever do your premarital counseling, you'll hear this again. When we first got married, 
I'm, again, on the football field of introversion and extroversion. I'm on about the 35-yard line on the introverted side, okay? Some days I'm almost in the red zone on that side of the football field, okay? I, don't, I, I can't operate that way throughout the day. I have to talk and I have to interact. When I get home, I just want to be quiet, right? Laura, being a good wife, wants to talk to her husband, and she would try to not be obvious about it, would try to fish it out of me. What did you do today? Eh, not much. So that not, that's a dead end. So she will try to generate conversation. Like, what do you think about, and you fill in the blank. What do you think about this? What do you think my answer is? I don't know. She wisened up after a while, after like a couple of years. <laughs> she grew in boldness and, what do you think about this? I don't know. And she would say, well, what do you think about it? Like, I, like I've never thought about that. What do you think about it? Like right now? Um, all that to say, what I learned over time was that Laura was not doing a wrong to me. I was doing a wrong to her. That was, that was all about me. I don't feel like talking, so I'm not going to talk. You ask me a question, I don't want to answer it. I'm not going to give you what you're looking for. What do you think about this? I don't know. I ain't never thought about that. What a punk. Think about it. Right? So, like, what I came to is I was, do, I was not doing this. I was not counting her more significant than myself. I was the most significant one to me in that moment, right? And I'm still not perfect at that, but, but that's, that's, that is exactly this. That, that is what the, that is in any relationship, not just a marriage relationship, in any relationship, that is what the practice of unity in the church looks like. It's being patient with, with one another. It is actually a real life living out of what Jesus said is the, is the golden rule. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do to them. Right? It's, 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 you think about and I, what, what, what That would mean I'm going to sit around and think what would minister to the other person. I'm going to do that. Right? And Paul summarizes all of this in verse 4 when he says, don't just look to your own interests, but consider and look to the interests of others. In the verses that follow, Paul's just going to, he's going to put forward Jesus Christ as our premier example, right, in verse 5 and following. But in a sense, he's already done that in verse 1. If we fill our minds with the gospel and come to real grips, not just what it says to us about Christ, but first what it says to us about ourselves, that's going to create in us a humility that provides the soil for unity to really grow and flourish. Um, I was going to leave you time around your tables to talk about this. I think it'll just be more of a nuisance if I just give you two minutes to do that. So we're just not going to do that. Um, but what I would, I would encourage you to do is, is, is what we've just seen in this passage. It, I, I, I want you to think 
in yourself about how, how that passage about unity, how does that most immediately apply to you in your life? Like, is there, any, is there anything that you currently know that you are doing, not just in how you receive others, but perhaps ways that you speak, things that you say, things that you say that build yourself up too much, things that you say that put others down and you shouldn't do it. Like, think about that. And then maybe in your missional community group or maybe around lunch after the service, I would love for y'all to sit around and just say, man, like, how can, how can unity increase in this body? And how can I be a part of that? I'm, how can I repent of things, that I'm, ways I'm working against that and pray for me that I can work toward it in the way I think and talk and speak and do.